0: an outline hopefully in your papers that you received to help us all this morning. What we saw earlier just with that question was the reality that our families form us, they shape us. That's why these stories are told. And many people these days are interested in genealogy and the history of their families. Has anyone seen that show, Who Do You Think You Are? Anyone seen that TV show? I think it's SBS? Um, people are very interested in ancestry websites like ancestry.com these are quite popular Uh, local libraries apparently are expanding in their family history sections because our history reveals something about who we are and these kinds of things like TV shows ancestry websites These sections in our library are becoming really popular because I think in a rapidly changing world, people are on a quest for who they are. See, in a traditional world, it was pretty well given who you were. Who you were was defined by who your father was, his occupation, by your marriage, which was for life, but now our occupations change. People's marital status changes. And so people are asking themselves... The question, like they've never asked before, who am I? Uh, like Mandy suggests, my father-in-law is quite proud now that he's found out that uh, he somehow is related to some puppet king of Scotland. <laughs> he's very proud of this because it, you know, it tells at least me something of who he thinks he is. <laughs> and no doubt, no doubt, uh, you've heard the stories. You've heard the reference. Uh, in your families of where you came from this was most apparent to me on the wo- on the morning of my wedding my great Greek auntie one of my great Greek aunties from adelaide was staying with us for a couple of days for the wedding her name was auntie vangi and even from her name, you can tell there's something kind of interesting about her. Her name in Greek was Thea Vangelia, and she was unique as a lady. She had a toupee on her head that she would take off to reveal her bald head and put it back on. This was incredibly entertaining uh, as a seven-year-old at a Greek dinner. And there she is, Thea Vangelia, Auntie Vangi. At the breakfast table, hours before my wedding, with a reflexology machine in one hand, massaging me and with the other telling me stories of our family back on the Greek island. How your great grandfather, Stuart Stavro Efe, he was a beautiful man, he was a beautiful man, but his love, his love for his wife, kept him alive. He was stabbed, he was stabbed in the chest by the Turkish mafia, and he swam two kilometres from the Turkish coastline back to his home island and stumbled up the front door, knocked in the middle of the night, crying the words to his wife, Anna, Anna, and she came and she cared for him and she looked after him. Now, that was the story that she was telling me. It's telling me on the on the yes, that's it. Groans is the only possible response, Leon. <laughs> she believed it. My father didn't believe it. My, I think my father was quite convinced that my great grandfather had probably drunk too much uzo at the Taverna and fallen over, and that's why he needed my great grandmother's help. But whether it was true or not, it didn't matter. Her intent was this is where you come from. This is your stock. This is who you are. And for some mean-minded people, they might think, yes, crazy Greek auntie, that makes a lot of sense <laughs> of who you are. See, our families our families are important because they're like a record of the history of the past for us. And our families help us locate ourselves in what can be a really confusing world as we navigate our way through. Families provide this anchor an initial starting place for us to think about who we are. We don't just inherit our DNA from our families, we inherit an identity, a story that we tell ourselves. Well, what we're going to see in the book of 1 John, in just one verse, and not even really one verse, we're going to see that John has a family story to tell. It's at the third chapter there of 1 John. 1 John's one of the Last books of the New Testament. So if you want to open up to 1 John, you'll see there in chapter 3, that's where we're going to be at, and particularly in verse 1 or only in verse 1, because what John's going to show us here from just this short verse is that we're part of a spiritual family and that we've been reborn as Jesus was saying in John chapter 3. We've been reborn into this new spiritual family. We've been adopted by God as our father. And what John wants to see us is what ultimately shapes us, is our family. But it's not a human family that is the ultimate reality that shapes and changes us. John wants us to see that it's this spiritual family that God has welcomed us into. I was ambitious earlier in the week, and I thought I was going to look at three verses, uh, but we're just going to look at verse one uh, this morning, so some of you will be thankful just for one verse. Let me pray, and uh, we'll get into it. Come to us, Father, we ask right now, in the power of your Spirit, through your Word preached, and so help us to see who we really are, so your reality Would be our reality not just for a moment but for eternity through jesus name amen first up john has this metaphor this idea this concept of adoption you can see it back in verse 29 where he talks about this new birth that we've been that we've entered into but john wants us to see that there's a motivation behind this adoption that we've moved into, because the adoption of a child is a beautiful thing. There's some lovely movies. Um, what's that one about adopting the kids from the kids from India to Tasmania? Um, Lion. Lion. It's a beautiful, touching movie. And uh, adoption's become quite popular these days. We see it in Hollywood, um, and it's hard not to be cynical about the motives for some Hollywood actors, actresses. Uh, wanting to adopt uh, large numbers of children, you can't help but think uh, it's just a convenient way for which they don't have to give up acting for nine or so months and they can keep their fabulous body. But you can't help as you... I mean, cynically, I can't help but think that sometimes when these people engage in adopting a child, they do it out of a need for themselves, a hole that needs to be filled. But John wants to be clear here that there is no need in God for our adoption. John wants us to know that we've been welcomed into this incredible family story, not because of God's need. Have a look there in verse 1. He says, How great is the love... The Father has lavished on that, on us. You see that the motivation for the Father's love in adopting us is, is sorry, the motivation is the Father's love. It's his great love. It's his immense love. Sometimes that phrase there in verse 1 is translated, see what kind of love, see what manner of love. The word that's used there is the same word that's used in Matthew's gospel when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples say, who is this man? What kind of man is this? The word literally means what, what country does this come from? Where does it come from? That's what John's asking here. Where does this Love come from, and John's saying this love comes from another country. This love that God has is, in fact, from another world. Because look how he describes it. Why is this love so out of this world? Well, it's because it's lavish. Lavish is a great word, isn't it? It's a great descriptive word. What what does it mean? It means kind of like beyond what you would expect, beyond what would be considered appropriate. And this is the kind of love that, God, that John is saying God has for us. What makes it lavish? What's the fact that he has given it to us? Because that word lavish has the idea of extravagant gift behind it. Because what we need to remember as Christian people is that this love that God has showed to us has all his initiative behind it. It's the father loving us. It's him taking responsibility first for his love for us. See, what, controls, what, what control does a child have over the adoption process? Well, typically, pretty well, nothing. And that's what John's saying here. But Christians get confused about this all the time. Um, you see up in the screen there's a quote from the Old Testament, a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And God is speaking to his people. He's about to take them in the promised land. He wants to be very clear to them about why he has rescued them and why he's bringing them into the promised land. And he says this, Moses says, In verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath. He swore to your fathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, why did God love Israel? God loved Israel because he set his love on them. His love for them was why they were loved. And so that's the same for us. Why have we been chosen? Why does God love us? It's not because we are more fantastic as people. It's not because we are more religious as people. It's because God chose to love us that is why he's, he loves us. And, and the implications of this are incredible because, to be honest, we find this hard to accept. I mean, for those of you who have been Christian a while, this is nothing new, that God loves you in an extravagant way, lavishes his love. He's adopted us into his family. We now have the privilege of calling his, him father. It's a great, lavish, limitless love that God has for us. But we find this hard. We find it's hard to believe, we find this hard to accept, we find this hard to live, because we've grown up with the mentality that love is earned. Parental approval comes as a result of passing tests, doing well, achieving. You know that question that's so heavy when you hear it as a child? How did you go in the test today? Heavy question for a kid. See, we learn to love. We learn about a father's love too often in this way. We learn about love that is earned. But we don't understand. We don't understand God's love if we learn love in that way. See what kind of love the father has. See what John's saying? He's saying this kind of love... This kind of love is out of the world. It's not from the way we learn to love in families. It's out of this world. It's different. It's not earned, but it's freely given. Not because of who we are, but perhaps the opposite, despite who we are. God's love is not a consequence for good grades in the Christian life. And this is so why I think so often we're discouraged as Christian people because we've slavishly involved ourselves in turning our faith into the drudgery of simply passing some divine test. God is not checking to see if you have passed. Our security as Christian people, our security in Christ comes from knowing that we are children, that we are children who have been loved by this lavish love that God has shown us. And it depends on his electing grace, his lavish gift of love. Up to point three in the outline. Uh, When a child is born, uh, the first question usually is, what's the child's name? And at this point, grandparents when they're hearing of a grandchild, no doubt, take a deep breath, hoping that the name's not someone of those strange, weird, modern names like Jaden or James spelt with a Z. Because it's so important, isn't it? A name is so important. It's the first part of a person's story. Because names are markers of identity, even Now. Just knowing someone's name tells you a little bit about them. You can tell possibly the gender, their cultural background, even sometimes what their parents intend for them. And here John wants Christians to know that the expression of God's love takes its form in us being given a name. Have a look there in verse 1 of chapter 3. It's God Himself as our Father who has named us because He says, How great is the Father's love? Uh, Sorry, how great is the love of the Father that He's lavished on us that we should be called children of God? See, the reality is that no one chooses to be a self, no one chooses to be a person. That's why the ones who do choose for us to be people, i.e., our parents, are the ones who give us. A name and so too, for us as Christians we didn't choose to become a Christian, and so we don't name ourselves, but here what John is saying is' God who has named us he has called us his children he has chosen to love us in this kind of way and it 's not just god's love here is it you can see the concept of the family is so Entwined in John's thinking. It's the Father's love that has loved us. It's this fatherly love that has declared us his children. And if you're a Christian here this morning, this is the most fundamental way in which you ought to think about yourself. If you think about yourself in this way, as an adopted child of your heavenly Father, this is an incredible Reality. This is an incredible reality that really changes the whole way you think about yourself. Because what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you know, to be a Christian is to be a believer, yes, of course. That's what we do as Christians. We believe, and that's wonderful. What is it to be a Christian? Well, it's to be forgiven, yes, it's to be forgiven. Of course we're forgiven. There's no hope without the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus what is it to be, a Christian Well, it's to be born again? Yes? Well, of course it's to be born again, and that's a glorious and wonderfully true reality. but you are born again. You are forgiven because of something. You are forgiven. And you are born again. for what? To be his child, to be his children. See, we have uh, selective histories, don't we? We have selective histories in the way that we think about our families. It's often the good stories that our families tell. We don't hear about, we hear more about the war hero stories than the war criminal stories. See, there are parts of ourselves that we don't like and there's parts of our families that we don't like. But this is what's happened in the Gospel of Lord Jesus, that... God has come into our lives. He's come into the reality of who we are and he's loved us, he's loved us so much. He's taken those ugly realities of sin and he's dealt with them fully and finally in the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And the benefits of the Lord Jesus' work on the cross is to bring us into this family reality, this adoptive reality. And here, John is saying, we have been given this name that defines who we are as people, children of God. In our trip to Kenya, we were in this um, this area uh, where the Masai tribe were, and I was slightly jealous because some of the people in our group were given a Masai name. The Masai are these warrior tribe, and I thought that's pretty cool, you know, to get a Masai name, you know, something that told translates like "you're a great warrior." But the reality is that if one Aussie person was faced with a lion, uh, they would not be a great warrior. They would be a great coward. You know, it was lovely to receive a Maasai name of being a great warrior, but it actually meant nothing. It was a you know it was a title uh, that was sentimentally conferred. Is that what it is for God to call us His children? Is it is it just a nice kind of divine sentiment that? he's given us that really lacks any reality. This is what John's clear about there in verse 1 because the Father has lavished his love and we are called children of God. And it's not just a title. Have a look there at those six words at the end of verse 1 and this is what we are. See, if you're a Christian, the truest thing about you is that you have been loved by your heavenly Father. And this love is, is so powerful, it, it changes. It changes us from the inside out. It changes not just who we are, but how we think about who we are. We have a new identity as his child. This is not, this is who we are. It's not You notice that the language is not, this is who you are like, but the language there that John uses deliberately is this is who you are. Because tragedies and successes of, uh, in our families, our upbringings and our experiences of life are not merely in the past, are they? We carry we carry all those childhood experiences. We carry what's happened to us in life. We carry that with us. But here John is saying that there is a, there's a more definitive reality As significant as your family life is, as significant as your experiences in life are, there's a more definitive reality about who you are. And that is who you are, a child of God. See, we need to change the way we understand ourselves. We need to see ourselves not the way we naturally and normally see ourselves. We need to understand ourselves the way God sees us. He's named us as his child, and we need to see it from his perspective. See, becoming a Christian, realising this, gives us an entirely new self-understanding. We transfer, we change the way in which we try and live our lives. We try and live our lives without God defining our own reality. We try and write our own story for ourselves, or we try and live out the story that our families have written for us. But here, we're reminded that it's not us who's writing the story. It's not our genetic family who's writing this story. It's God, our Father, who's writing the story of our lives. And that gives us three privileges as Christian people that I want to end with. Because I want to ask us the question this morning. Are we living as God's children Oh, you you know that. If you've been around church, you know that you're a child of God and that's lovely. But I want to ask you are you living as if that reality is the most true thing, is the truest thing about you? Are you living as a child or are you living as an orphan? Because unless we're governed by the idea that we are a dearly loved child, we actually can't live because we've been built as human people, for family love. That's why families mean so much to me, to us. But we've been ultimately built for the love of our Heavenly Father. Yeah. And so we have three privileges as Christian people if we know that God is our Father and we are his child. The first privilege is acceptance. Um, some of you run businesses and some of you in charge of a number of employees. You know that... You know, within reason and within HR laws, you you can fire an employee. It's not easy these days, but it is possible. You can fire an employee. But the problem with a child is you can't fire a child. A parent is stuck with a child for the term of their natural life. And that's one of the things... That's one of the incredible things about a parent is they're so dogged and determined with the love that they have for their child. You see this with mothers. No matter how ugly, dumb or evil a kid is, mothers love their little children. See, what does it mean to be a child of God? It means you can't be fired. It means God's dogged and determined love is the experience of your life. And so how do we know if we believe this? Well, this is the test. Do you live in that freedom? Do you live in the freedom knowing that you are a child of God or are you constantly up and down depending on whether you feel like you've lived up to God's standards? Are you being whipped about emotionally depending on day-to-day whether you feel like a success or a failure? If you are, you're not acting like a child. You're acting like an orphan if you say, oh, I've done it again. God's probably given up on me. And then the next day, you think, you've, well, perhaps a week, you've been in this run of, you know, reading your Bible, and you think, now, now God will answer my prayers because look at the way I'm living. That's not thinking as a child. That's thinking as an orphan. Secondly, we have the privilege of access. Again, the difference between a child and an employee is a child does not have restricted access. Uh, Some of us might be very close to our bosses. Some of us might respect and even love our bosses, but (laughs) I can tell you no matter how close you are to your boss, you're not going to walk into the bedroom at 2am in the morning and ask for a drink. You don't do that, but kids do. And a lot of us don't know that we have this kind of access to God. We think of ourselves as an employee. But if he's our Heavenly Father, we can come to him at any time. There was a man named Billy Bray in the 19th century, and he was a boxer. He was a rough and tough boxer, but he became a Christian and became a travelling evangelist. And people would come to him with their problems as he spoke about the Lord Jesus, And as they told him their problems, he would say to them, I'll have to talk to Father about that. I'll have to talk to Father about this. And he was speaking about his prayer. He was speaking about the way he thought of prayer. See, usually when we think about God as our Father, we think about him as the Father. Billy Bray Used to say, I have to talk to Father about this, like it was his father, like his father was listening, like his father cared. There are some wonderful prayer warriors in our church, men and women who are just gripped by the reality of prayer. And I wonder what makes the difference between those kind of people and most of us, including me, is that those who come to God often in prayer really believe that they have access to God, that he wants to hear, that he cares because they're living not as orphans, they're living as children. If you're living as a child, you'd be constantly availing yourself of that access in prayer. Thirdly and finally, that third privilege is protection. Many of us know that parents can't avoid protecting, caring, guiding their children. In fact, Those of us who are adults know that sometimes our parents still try and do this for us, a warning for those who are older uh, parents. It's just so built into what it is to be a parent. You're so tied to your child. In fact, it's very hard for a parent to be happy if they know that their child is not happy. And the same is true of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we're told that all things work for the good of those that God loves. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that the troubles that we often face and go through are God's fatherly discipline and care for us. See, parents can't avoid protecting their child, they can't avoid guiding them. And so, if you're constantly worried about the future, fretting about what will happen or might happen or might not happen, if you're resentful even of what has happened, then you're not living as a child. living as an orphan a child says I know as hard as what I'm going through is as I know that as hard as it is for me to understand it's just like when I was a child and my parents did things that I didn't understand but I see in hindsight it was good for me I know the circumstances of my life the arrangements of a loving Heavenly Father we have the privilege of his protection So, I want to close. Some of us are trapped and so controlled by our families that we grew up in. Some of us are so proud of the families we grew up in. And both can be equally unhelpful. So, what is the ultimate family story that you are telling yourself? What anchors who you are? What locates you? What is the family story that you are telling yourself? I'm going to ask and pray that it might be this. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Amen. Please stand as we sing.